0: I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3. We're looking this evening at uh, verses 12 through 31. 31 is the reference to Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel, and that's about it. We're going to concentrate our attention this evening on the other verses, 12 through 30. So give careful attention to the Word of God. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he'd gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought... Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. for The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this portion of it. We pray that we might uh, learn those things you would have us to learn as we study the scriptures now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite memories of seminary was Hebrew under Al Groves at Westminster Seminary and reading Judges in Hebrew. Judges is kind of the Hebrew equivalent to the Gospel of John. Uh, I don't know, uh, Matt, if this was true for you. Of course, when you start taking Greek. You know, you're reading simple sentences in the Greek grammar, but uh, very quickly you start moving to we're actually reading some New Testament. John is fairly simple Greek, so you start reading John one. In the beginning was the word. It's fairly ordinary vocabulary, fairly simple sentences. Well, Judges is the same way in Hebrew. It's pretty straightforward prose, fairly basic vocabulary for the most part. And uh, I remember we would read sections and discuss in class. I remember reading this passage particularly in in Hebrew under Al Groves and just having a, a great time looking at all the wonderful details of this chapter. Some people come to a chapter like this and Passage like this and wonder what on earth this stuff's doing, sullying the white pages of their Bible. Now, why, why is this is something like this in the Bible? Well, it's here for a very important reason. It's teaching us that God delivers his people in their distress. All of the, the, the graphic nature of the text aside, that's the point. God delivers his people in their Distress, In fact, when that distress is brought on by themselves. And we see how that starts again in verse 12. We've looked at the cycle uh, of judges with Othniel, that uh, rather predictable pattern that the, uh, that the cycles of the judges go through. And we start out uh, again with this slide into sin, verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, they had an opportunity. Verse 11, the land had rest 40 years under the leadership of Othniel, the nephew and son-in-law of Caleb. Well, then uh, after that time, after he died, the people of Israel again turned to evil. We've talked about that. The potency, not just of sins, but of sin, our fallen nature, bent toward sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, they felt that. And in fact, they did wander. And in discipline of them, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon's dominance over Israel was not an accident of history. It was the sovereign purpose of God because his people had rebelled against him. Again, recognizing the Lord is the Lord of history. So he gathers some allies, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and they take on Israel. They defeat them, took possession of the city of Palms. What's the city of Palms? Jericho. Very good. Very good. Jericho. Uh, which was significant, uh, not the least historically, because that was the first city that Israel took, right, when they came into the promised land. They take Jericho after crossing over. Well, now these Canaanites have taken it back. Moabites, Ammonites, Amalekites, they've taken it back. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. My son's lifetime. there's like it's gone by in a hurry, but it's been 18 years, better part of two decades. They were under the thumb of Eglon. Now, you read a passage like this, you need to recognize there's a lot of theology here. There's also a lot of political satire. This is mockery, pure and simple. This is, this is ridiculing Moab, Eglon, the enemies of the Lord. And you have to read it that way. Put yourself in the sandals of an Israelite. Your your nation's been oppressed. You're being forced to pay tribute. You're being impoverished, having to send tribute every year to this obese potentate who's ruling over you. The Israelites found this delightful. And to some degree, we should too. Now, we may not be concerned about Moabites, but there should be an aspect of us that desires to see God glorified as his enemies are removed. Either because they surrender and become friends, or because the Lord thwarts their purposes and destroys them. We want the glory of God. We want the salvation of his people. We want those who will not surrender to the Lord to lose to him. And so there's, there's some of that going on here. Now it is graphic. It it is it's supposed to be. That's that's part of the mockery, as we will see. It starts with this man Eglon. You know, it's it's kind of like Kushan Rishathaim, doubly evil. You know, is that really what his parents named him, Kushan the doubly evil? You know, from the two rivers Aram Naharaim. Eglon means something like. Calf. It means it's a diminutive form, like little little calf. Uh, it also sounds like a Hebrew word that means round or rotund. I don't know if that's what his parents named him. Maybe it was, or that may just be another epithet that the Israelites came up to, to give to him. At any rate, it's not a very flattering name. I mean, it's, not, it's like naming your kid Fatso. You know, that, that's basically the, the name that he has. Ehud's name, by the way, is also significant. It means something like, where is the splendor, or where is the majesty? Uh, remember in 1 Samuel 4, where Ichabod is born. Ichabod means the glory has departed, right? Uh, kabod, glory, Ichabod, where is the glory? The glory has departed. Well, Ehud's name also sort of reflects that. Where is the splendor? Now, as the covenant people of God are under the oppression of, of the fat calf, where is the splendor? Ehud is his name. Well, we read in verse 15, uh, verse fourteen that they served Eglon for eighteen years. This this oppression, this being subjugated, and then verse fifteen, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Do you think that it took them eighteen years for that to occur? They should. Maybe it did. Maybe it's so deeply ingrained in Canaanite religion it took that long. We don't know. Or maybe at that point it really became intense. But it says they cried out to the Lord. Doesn't again? Doesn't say they repented? Maybe they did, but they were calling out for help. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Later, the Benjaminites are noted for left-handedness. Actually, there's some question. Left-handed is is a, sort of a weird way to put it. And there was some thought that he may have had some deformity with his right hand. It actually refers to something about his right hand being hindered. It's possible that uh, some were actually trained. Their right hand was somewhat restricted to train them to use their left hand or perhaps to be ambidextrous. But the point is, and it's important to the story, this man was good with his left hand. He was left-handed. He could use his left hand, and that's significant later on. Now, we don't know how Ehud came to this point. Apparently, he was somewhat of a leader already, although he sort of seems to rise to true dominance uh, later in this story. But Ehud is raised up, and the people of Israel send tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, he wasn't alone. He was part of a delegation that goes to Eglon to bring this, this tribute, probably a large, largely made up of harvest of, of, grain or food or whatever, uh, may also have included some sort of money in the deal. But, uh, to, to remain in Eglon's good graces, they had to pay tribute. Uh, no doubt a heavy tax levied on them that they had to bring. And so Ehud is part of this delegation that, uh, that comes to bring this tribute to the, to the king uh, of Moab. By the way, Speaking of Moab, who else do we know who is a moabite S. Ruth, which Ruth follows. It seems to happen about the same time. This was her people, Ruth's people, the Moabites. And uh, they they sent his tribute to Eglon. Now, in verse 16, we read, Ehud made for himself a sword, double-edged sword, two edges, cubit in length. It's probably anywhere from about 15 to 18 inches cubit. Uh, Usually you can count on being about a foot and a half. So it's probably about 15 to 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Most people then, like now, are right-handed. If he was searched, it's much more likely they would check his left leg for uh, for some sort of weapon than they would his right leg. Uh, much is made of it. You think, well, why wouldn't they check both legs? Well, it just sort of goes into the lampooning of uh, Eglon and his, his staff, his guards. But he makes a sword, double-edged sword, and he binds it under his clothes to his right leg. So he's got this hidden weapon. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, Now, Eglon, although his name has already hinted at this, this is the first he really tells us of it, Eglon was a very fat man. It's um, emphasized. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. Apparently, he went with them. It says, verse 19, he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. He went that far. Notice there's, that this is referred to but not commented on. Idols at Gilgal. That's something we would want to know more about. But it seems by this point that's pretty commonplace in Israel. Probably uh, shrines to Baal, Asherah poles, shrines to Asherah, and so forth. Uh, the, the narrator refers to them rather offhandedly without making comment or assessment of them. Uh, but as they're heading back... Uh, they go that far to the, uh, the idols near Gilgal. And verse 19, Ehud turns back and he goes back and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, the king commands silence, which apparently his uh, courtiers, his guards, take as uh, instruction to leave his presence which they do. Now, to really appreciate it, you have to imagine the Israelites, an Israelite reading this would be snickering. You know, how dumb is this king to send his guards out in the presence of someone he thinks is a friend? And it's very, very portrayed as very cunning, very wise. He's come with a tribute. He's, he's, he's paid, you know, homage to the king. And he leaves. And then he comes back. The king thinks, this is a friend. He has nothing to suspect. The man has come, the man's paid tribute, the man has left, and now he comes back and he says, I have a secret message for you. So Eglon's completely taken in. He thinks Ehud's his friend. Maybe he's going to tell him about some revolt in the making somewhere, or something going on in his, in his kingdom. Ehud uh, is very shrewd in how he approaches this. He's already won favor, disarmed any suspicions on Eglon's part by paying tribute. And he comes back. And he says, I have a secret message for you. And he commanded silence, and his attendants went out from his presence. Verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Even in that, I have a secret message or I have a message from God, I have a word. The Hebrew word uh, is dabar, and it can mean word but it can also mean other things. I had any thoughts? The bar. can mean word, matter, thing. It's sort of a general word. I mean it, it refers to a word, but it can also refer to a thing. I mean it could be very indefinite that way. So sort of the fun is is Ehud is saying, I have I have something secret for you, O king. And the king thinks it's good, whereas of course we know he's Referring to that uh, that blade on his leg. I have, I have a little secret thing for you, king. And then he, he goes so far as to say, uh, in, in verse 20, he gets him alone. He says, I have a message. I have a thing from God for you. And Eglon, you could see him now in this, in this reference for this divine message that is coming his way, you know, staggers his bulk to his feet and gets up, which, of course, serves the purpose of exposing uh, his midsection. Now, you know how in a movie, when they really want to focus on something, there's a key moment, a dramatic element in the movie, it goes into slow motion, Right? Remember how uh, Eric Little in Chariots of Fire gets knocked down in the track. And they go, oh, no, you know, he's out of it. And he, he slowly gets back up in slow motion, and starts running, and it zeroes in on that action. Well, of course, this isn't film. This is This is print. This is written. So what it does to go into slow motion is zoom in on every detail, each detail of the action. Notice... Verse 14, we covered 18 years in one verse. The people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Boom, two decades, done. But here, as we get into verse 21, it goes into slow motion, into detail, into perhaps excruciating detail. But that what it's doing, is this is the moment, zeroing in on the action. He arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, Taking the sword from his right thigh, you can just see in the Hollywood version the knife slowly thrust into Eglon's belly. Left-handed. Totally unsuspected. The hilt also went after the blade. Hilt may be handled. A hilt would seem to, to prevent it from going in. It could be that it was not a hilt. It was just the handle. It was a smooth uh, a line of a blade to, to make it easily concealed. Um, and without a hilt, without any kind of hand protection, it would slip all the more easily in. Hilt went in after the blade, left hand, and the fat closed over the blade. He did not pull the sword out of his belly there so several reasons for that not the least of which was it would it would probably get blood on ehud himself which would be difficult as we'll see in a moment and the dung came out now that's either from the wound itself it's possible that that's after he died and his bowels evacuate we don't know it's hard to tell I mean, it could be either way in fact one translator even thinks it refers to the The the, the point of the blade coming out somewhere else. Uh, But it zeroes in on this decisive action of Ehud. And then things just start to speed up again. Verse 23, Ehud went out onto the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Now remember, they were in secret. The courtiers, the guard, they're off somewhere else here. And he basically goes out the back way. Where did he go? He locked himself in a chamber. All of this sort of ties together, and it's hard to be definite about this, but it seems like the best estimate is, you know, they didn't have plumbing and flush toilets like we do. But it, uh, since they seem to be in the bathroom from what follows later, it seems they who made his escape out, you know, the hole out the chute, uh, got away. It worked. Verse twenty-four. When he had gone, the servants came. When they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, "Behold, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber." Why would they think that? Well, apparently this was the bathroom. The doors were locked. And remember what happened earlier. They probably smelled something. And the ah, okay. Well, we'll just leave them alone for a little bit. And they waited. And they waited. Well, he's starting to get a little embarrassed about this, not sure what to do. When he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay, ironically, their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, while they were waiting. He made good his escape, passed beyond the idols again, a reference to the idols, escaped to Syrah. When he arrives, he sounds the trumpet, he rallies the troops And they rise up with Ehud as their leader. Follow me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. First reference to the Lord, by the way. How sincere Ehud was in that, we don't know. Um, Was he truly a follower of the Lord? Was he a follower of Baal? We don't know. The only reference, the only theological aspect he gives to this. The Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand, whether or whatever his heart, it was true. So they went after him, seized the fords, didn't allow anyone to pass over, killed about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. Moab was subdued that day in the hand of Israel, and the victory they won gained them rest for 80 years. What do we make of a story like this? What do you do with this? Well, it is graphic, and it's meant to be. It's meant to ridicule and belittle the Moabites and to show the, the cleverness of this Israelite leader. But certainly from our perspective, it simply shows the Lord is at work to deliver his people in their distress. And it's true. And the Lord is at work. It doesn't make any comment on the Lord's assessment of Ehud's deceit and trickery. But the Lord did raise him up. And the Lord did use that uh, assassination of the Moabite leader in his rallying the troops to bring deliverance to to his people. The Lord was at work even in the messiness and maybe even the ambiguity of what was taking place there to bring deliverance for his people. But you know, while Ehud, the southpaw savior, could save Israel from Moab... He couldn't save Israel from themselves. And Israel would again return to their sins. Chapter 4, the people of Israel again did what was evil. In the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died. We don't need a left-handed Savior for the people of God. We need a crucified Savior for the people of God. I don't know if Jesus was left-handed or not. I suspect not, given the odds. But uh, we need a a Savior better than Ehud. Ehud could deliver from Moab. He could deliver Israel for themselves. We needed a Savior who could deliver us from ourselves, who could deliver us from our own sinful hearts. And the Lord sent his own Son to be that Deliverer, who did not inflict a gruesome death on someone else, but was willing himself to suffer a pretty horrific and gruesome death so that we might be set free from the oppression of our own hearts. And so we look at Ehud. This is not the kind of guy you'd lift up to your children and say, you know, you ought to be like Ehud. You ought to. It's hard to say how you'd be like Ehud. Be clever, maybe. I don't know. Be resourceful, maybe. But the point is, Ehud is not the model. The Lord is. The Lord is the Savior, the ultimate Savior of His people. So as we read a passage like this, we may say, eww, or yuck, or neat, or whatever. But ultimately, you come to the end of the passage, and you have to say, thank you, Lord, that while we were still in our sins... Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. Lord, we have not earned him or deserved him, and yet you sent him. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for pouring out your grace on us. Father, Jesus died for us, uh, physically and spiritually, a far more gruesome death than Eglon did. Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who is willing to give himself for us that we might be truly free. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.